As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. The race is on. And the first of Formula One's much-vaunted sprint qualifying races will be held at Silverstone this weekend. But what impact will the 100km Saturday sprint have on the British Grand Prix as a whole, and will it work as hoped? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer those questions and more are Mark Hughes and Scott Mitchell. Well, hello, Mark. Have you have you recovered from F1's triple header? Um, physically, I have, um, although I'm, I'm now in prison, as um, in prison in my own home as per the regulations so that's a bit of a bore but other than that yeah fine it's good you clarified you're just in prison in quarantine terms just in case people thought something strange had happened we're using <laughs> visiting hours to get the uh, get the podcast recorded but i should say we would still expect you to offer your insight even in that circumstance so i'm, I'm glad we've got oh, absolutely that. yeah no uh, problem. We've, we, we've got the precedent set for that and hello scott mitchell not in prison i hope no um although you know sometimes when you're stuck in uh stuck in the same place obviously for a while it can it can feel a little bit like that uh but fortunately i've uh, i've grown to um i've grown to, to to love the little mini covid prison i've been in for the last 18 months i suppose ed you could say i've developed some kind of stockholm syndrome uh it's been a long time eventually we had to have a, a stockholm syndrome pun turning up at some point That's we can edit reason. that out can't we yeah, well, we normally edit quite a lot of Scott out. People people don't realise the podcast normally takes four or five hours, but we cut it down to kind of 45 minutes an hour once we... Yeah, we have to it. try about 50 or 60 of these intros until I stop being either offensive or just plain stupid. <laughs> exactly, yeah, whereas the rest of us are always perfection at all times. Well, should we talk about the British Grand Prix, Scott? Because there's been endless talk about sprint qualifying over the past few months. Can you lay out the basics of how it's going to work and what actually we should call everything as well? Yeah, um, so I think for, for starters, you are probably going to hear it referred to as the sprint over the course of uh, 
the build-up to the British Grand Prix through the weekend and uh, other events that have this format in, in place. It was originally, yeah, you've been referring to it as sprint qualifying. That That is what it is. It's a qualifying race on the Saturday. But F1, I think, will brand it as the sprint just to sort of keep qualifying as qualifying and, you know, the Grand Prix as the race. Um, so basically, uh, it's something that's going to be held at, at three events this season, and Silverstone is, is is the first one. The, it's a it's a format change as well, not not just sort of something being crowbarred into the existing weekend structure. Um, so basically, it will feature and uh, normal qualifying will take place on Friday, um, quite quite late in the day, uh, and that will set the grid for the sprint race on Saturday. Um, the Saturday sprint race uh, will be 100 kilometers in, in length. Uh, there will be no mandatory pit stop. There's complete freedom of choice on tyres. And it will establish the grid for Sunday's Grand Prix and also award points to the top three finishers in a 3-2-1 system. So uh, you, you get a little bit more than just pole position for, for, for topping it. Um, it's it's something that we've been expecting for, for for quite some time. As I said, the first one's going to be at Silverstone. It will also be in use at Monza. And there's a third venue that hasn't been confirmed just yet. Brazil was initially earmarked for it, but I think we all don't really expect that race to, to go ahead. So maybe Austin or, or something like that. And the as, as I mentioned, the other thing that's important to factor in is it does adjust the the wider format as well so we're going to have a, a 60 minute fp1 as we do at the moment uh, with two sets of tires available uh qualifying will be take take place later in the day five sets of softs available uh so this is something that that changes from normal qualifying whereas in qualifying at the moment obviously the tire that you use in q2 to get through to q3 that's your starting tire for the grand prix but now for normal qualifying in this new format, all the teams will just be using softs and then they will have freedom of tyre choice for the start of the sprint race and also for the start of Sunday's Grand Prix. Um, on Saturday, obviously qualifying will have taken place on the Friday, but Saturday we'll have an hour of FP2, obviously, um, with only one set of tyres available. Um, and then, as I said, the 100km sprint race uh, later on with two sets of tyres available, but no uh, mandatory pit stop, no need to use two compounds in the race. And then Sunday's Grand Prix takes place as it does at the moment, but with the exception of freedom of choice for the starting tyre. So I think that is pretty much everything you need to know about the sprint race in terms of the broader overview the weekend structure but if i've missed anything ed now is your chance to berate me no you expressed it very eloquently and concisely so we can get mark to talk a little bit about the impact what what effect will it have on the one hand just the one practice session before qualifying and of course sunday's race will be disrupted by what happens in the sprint but on the other it's also just a a straightforward 100 kilometer race so just that risk being more of the same just being a a bolt-on extension of the grand prix itself it's not going to change the competitive order, um, but the way that we get there might be, you know, there's more room for some random variables to get in the way. Um, the idea is that in the ideal world, it's just this flat out sprint where the drivers don't need to worry about strategy. And that, that, that's the idealized sort of thing that they've been chasing. But I don't think it'll work out like that. I mean, we might get a pleasant surprise, but I suspect it'll be. Um, you know, once once it settles down from the, the first lap, I, I don't think drivers are going to be risking too much, um, because obviously it's a, a retirement or a, a, a bodywork damaging incident that puts you a long way back is is completely screwing your chances for the big event. So, um, 
yeah, you can look at it as just the first stint of the of the race, really. I think uh, is probably how it's going to be approached. And let's, but let's see. There may be some unintended consequences, negative or, or positive. And I think I'm, uh, it's, it's quite intriguing. I'm quite looking forward to seeing how it it does pan out. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't think we're going to see the the idealized sort of flat out. Just it's called the sprint, so you, it makes you think it's going to be driven flat out. I think you'll still have to do some tire management in it. Um, I think it's still going to be a, a similar style of racing. It's just the way how we get to Sunday's grid is going to be different. It's not going to be um, British touring cars at Brands Indy in race three with a reverse grid, is it? You're not going to have people, uh, you know, trying to wheel bang out the way to, to you know make as much uh, a ground as possible in a short time. And it's also not going to be anything like the, you know, the two-lap sprint that we saw at the end of the Azerbaijan Grand Prix, where it was basically, if you were in that midfield fight, it was a free-for-all, basically. Pierre Gasly was was willing to risk chucking his Alfa Tauri into the wall because he was like, I've got one lap here to get a podium, so why not? It's not going to be anything like that. And you know, Ross Braun is the biggest champion of this uh sprint race is going to bring out the driver's racing mentality argument. I don't, I don't really buy it because um, yeah, I, I, I do agree on principle that you know these racing drivers are going to get competitive in a supermarket car park with some trolleys, but they're not the guys who are actually sort of really in charge of how you uh, approach the full weekend. And they know that there are more points on offer on Sunday than Saturday. So I just think the long game is still going to come into it um, in the same way that you see drivers taking a risk into turn one on the first lap but they don't it's not a win it or bin it mentality into the first corner so uh i, I don't think that's going to happen one thing that i am quite in, intrigued about because as mark said that it is quite fascinating to see exactly how it plays out and there's going to be a huge novel novelty value to the first one especially but one thing that i'm intrigued is I think a few times, whenever we've seen, uh, for example, like heavy rain on a Friday and the Friday running is massively reduced, there's always like, uh, and sometimes I think the correlation is real, but it all almost inevitably prompts a debate through the weekend of, oh, should we be taking away track time and data from the teams? Because when we don't know what's going on, qualifying's a bit more interesting and the race is more of an unknown. We're going to get a bit of a flavour of that with the, the sprint format because we're only going to have this one hour of practice on the Friday. And then the cars are going to enter a form of Park Ferme for qualifying itself on Friday evening. There, there are going to be changes that, that the teams are permitted to, to, to make. At the time we're recording this, we don't know the full suite of what's going to be part of Park Ferme and what isn't. But there are going to be some setup changes that can be made after Friday and again, I think after sprint after the sprint as well on the Saturday but they are fundamentally going to be locking in their qualifying setups and by extension the vast majority of the race car setup that they're going to be using for the rest of the weekend with only 60 minutes of running on the on the Friday and it seems that there's going to be a very good chance that it's going to have the um the 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 new type of Pirelli rear tire as well which while obviously we're not expecting that to make a fundamental difference it 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 does inject another small variable in, in into the mix especially if it is a you know a stiffer reconstruction and it allows the teams to run lower pressures again who knows what knock-on consequences it's going to have so I think there's there's quite a lot of intrigue around that I don't know how you two see it in, you know these teams have so much simulation power now in terms of arriving at the track 
and ready to go. But McLaren, for example, have a bit of a trend this season of underwhelming a little bit on the Friday and doing quite a lot of work overnight and then coming out the blocks on Saturday. They're not going to have as big a window to do that. So does that have the potential to, to catch teams out? Because that's what I'm quite interested to find out. Yeah, I'd say anything that disrupts that flow of that that process of fettling the car has to. They are getting less practice session. Even if you set aside the order of everything, you've got two practice sessions, not three. So that's cutting a third of your of your practice time from a normal Grand Prix weekend. So that will make a difference. And yeah, the fact that you're going to lock in stuff effectively so quickly, it does mean that it's going to privilege the teams that are the best prepared to take the least time to to sharpen and get the car working well. So that anything I think that takes away some preparation time is a good thing because it creates kind of a narrower window for all the teams to be in in terms of who's hit the ground running well, who perhaps needs to do a, a little bit more work. So I'm quite interested in in that effect. And obviously that's the benefit of trading a pre-practice session effectively for the sprint race on the, on the Saturday, which I think is probably a, well, it's certainly a positive and it's a good thing to have something proper to get your teeth into on a on a Friday but certainly teams are going to have to make decisions about how they approach qualifying and also as a result approach FP1 in a very different way because that's your qualifying simulation opportunity so it'll have that kind of backwards effect as well so I'm you know I'm I'm, I'm quite interested I mean Mark it's very very difficult to say who it helps and who it'll go against because they've all got the same reduction and generally anything that changes things makes life harder for the smaller teams that have less uh, less capabilities but do you have any feel for what the impact might be in in specific terms only that if you're looking at the two um, championship contending teams if you look at a pattern both this year and last you would say that quite often mercedes doesn't hit the ground running but sort of hones its car into shape as the weekend goes on and Red Bull more often, you know, or quick straight away. Not quite sure if that's going to carry through, but it, it yeah, may do. It, it's something. It's something to bear in mind. Um, I think the 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 McLaren thing that Scott referenced earlier was, I think that's probably um, more a, a deliberate. Um, the way they they were in their session, they they have a very different program. Um, to to the teams around them, so you you see them underrepresented on Friday usually, and then pop up in qualifying. So obviously, um, I don't think I, I think they'll they'll just change their program accordingly. But uh, but um, yeah, I mean it, it's it's impossible to call really going in, isn't it? It's it's one of those things that will any changes will make sense in hindsight, and will just help build a, the, the the jigsaw between the, the the teams as we progress through the season. I think it's the big positive of this format change because having the kind of homogenous Grand Prix weekends, it does mean teams get very, very good at optimising that. They're very comfortable within it. They know exactly what they're doing when. And sometimes, yes, rain gets in the way or you lose a Friday as we did at the Nürburgring last year. But generally, you're on safe ground. But this this changes things. And while I'm a little bit disappointed that the addition of the Saturday race is so conservative in terms of the way it's being being done because it is just a 100-kilometre race with not much else change that kind of bolts onto the front of the Grand Prix. I think the fact that it is changing the weekend and disrupting it is a very positive thing. But of course, once I've done it once, and it should happen two more times this year, it'll be doing the same thing again. So 
interested to see if if there's any unexpected consequences in that regard. And of course, there always are surprise consequences. Remember how uh, indignant Ron Dennis was about Renault taking lots of fuel out and getting uh, uh, and getting the the pole at uh, Malaysia early on in the in the fueled qualifying because it sort of wasn't considered the done thing. But there's perhaps not such an obvious way to exploit that. But there's always things that people people don't expect that that may have an an, an impact. I guess Scott as well. It's interesting for drivers because if you're say a Daniel Ricciardo type or Kimi Raikkonen, the drivers who are underperforming in qualifying, you'll at least think, well, actually, we get two races, two starts to make up some uh, to make up some ground. So it perhaps inches the the dial a little bit more in favour of your race execution compared to to qualifying from an average weekend. Yeah, that's certainly true. Um, and it also uh, injects just that little extra bit of jeopardy. There's a second race start for everybody to negotiate. So there's another uh, key pinch point uh, to manage in, in the sprint. Um, and of course, if there is drama through through the race, I would imagine that the, the usual red flag and restart rules uh, would apply. So there is potential for, for for things to 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 mix up in that regard. I just my 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 underlying concern with it is that because um be, be, because there's such a long way back if you have a problem on the first corner or in the early stage of the the sprint or especially towards the end of it I don't see why I don't see why you'd risk it. I don't see why you'd risk um compromising your entire grand prix for the sake of gaining say one place um effectively on the grid um in let's put it into sort of a slightly different context with obviously the existing format um with someone's uh let's say the q3 laps for example that we see in qualifying now you do see drivers tend to take a little bit more risk especially in that midfield group say the people that are fighting over i don't know p p5 to, to p10 um, because there's a little bit less to lose, obviously, if you do if you do get it wrong. Um, but that's the difference between maybe gaining one or two places and or losing one or two places. It's not the difference between you know turning eighth on the grid into seventh or nineteenth. <laughs> so I, I just think when you balance out the risk versus reward of uh, take, of being aggressive in the sprint, my concern is um, that the the risk will comfortably out, outweigh the reward. Obviously, it's something I would absolutely love to be proven wrong on. Well, Formula One drivers have a, a tendency to surprise, should we say, in certain things. I guess it depends who you are, because if you've overachieved in qualifying, it's purely about consolidation. If you're a George Russell type or you're whoever's on pole position, you just want to consolidate that. Whereas if you've underachieved, you'll want to attack and try and uh, try and make things up. The, the thing I'm most concerned about is it would be a real shame for the British Grand Prix if assuming the general pattern we've seen this year is is repeated if you have say one of Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton's on pole position and the other ones had something go awry on Saturday and they're starting down the back and suddenly you've kind of taken away that that dual elements uh, admittedly that can happen on the first lap of a normal Grand Prix and then you get the same effect but it, it would damage the anticipation a little bit the one thing that interests me Mark is that they they could have done quite a bit more with the sprint race format. If you say, right, we'll add another race, they could have scrambled the grid in some way. They could have made some changes just to make it less than just sort of a chunk of a race added into to Saturday. And would you like to have seen a little bit more? And also, does it mean that Formula One has to be a little careful that if the sprint 
tests that are run this year are fairly mundane and straightforward. People don't just write off the idea of having a secondary race for good because the conditions weren't necessarily there to be that disruptive. I think there's been a, the the research that they did among fans um, a couple of years ago was that they really didn't like anything which might be construed as artificial. So anything which artificially mixes up the competitive order um, generally got the thumbs down. So I think reverse grids, although they would have made the sprint uh, a lot more exciting, um, I think they felt it was introducing too much of an element of artificiality. And I kind of agree on that, but I would like I would like them to go a little bit further with it in terms of, um, you, you know, they're saying it's 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 something where the drivers can just go, go flat out and with, with, without worrying about a strategy. I'd, I'd like to I'd like to take that component and say, yeah, okay, absolutely. Let's let's just switch off the the telemetry. Let's just switch off the uh, radio communication, apart from safe, safety advice. Um, and let's make it totally a driver-controlled race. I would like to see that. I don't, you know, this is an ideal opportunity to try that out. Um, and on the on the one hand, a lot of the radio conversations are, are very popular with the fans because it's giving you an insight into how the races are being run. Um, but on on the other, there's there's something a little bit um, I don't know unsatisfying about hearing a driver guided through how to best run his race rather than leaving it up to him. And I think that's um, you le- it leads to a, a very small window of optimization. When everybody's optimizing the, their individual cars, you're not going to see much variation. And um, I think if it was left up to the drivers to feel their own way of how to best use the tires, how to you know best bring the brakes in, all, all these things, I think there would be more variation. And I think you would see some interesting facets of, um, that are currently hidden about weaknesses and strengths of, of the drivers. Um, that's where I'd like to see them uh, you know, be a bit more adventurous with the sprint. Some of the things you listed there show how wide the scope can be for the changes you make. It doesn't necessarily have to be a reverse grid. It can be some of those those minor tweaks that change things. The thing that does slightly surprise me, Scott, is when Ross Braun was talking about it, he was advocating the simplicity of it that it's this flat out charge and of course it isn't it's 100 kilometers these are still temperature sensitive tires that require management that's just a a fact it's not 60 it's not uh, 12 kilometers around two laps of Baku is it it's very very uh, different in that regard but they've almost taken they have taken out all the complexity that they've added to normal Grand Prix that was introduced to try and liven things up such as making sure you have to use two different compounds so there's a pit stop so the pit stop's gone you haven't got your starting tyre confusion based on Q2. Now, regardless of the fact that rule doesn't really work as intended, it was intended to, to liven things up. So I just find it a little bit strange that Formula 1 for years has been introducing these things and then suddenly it's a big virtue to take them all out. And th- that's the downside, isn't it? It actually says if you strip these things out, you actually can end up with a relatively straightforward race. I obviously hope it isn't, but it could be quite straightforward. Yeah, I guess it's a good example of how easily things just get baked in and uh, just not assumed to be sacred. No one's saying that, oh, I can't believe we're we're getting rid of the Q2 starting tyre rule. Um, it's nothing like that. Uh, but it is the sort of thing that I think just becomes so baked in that you don't really think about it. And, you, and F1 has looked at alternatives um, in, in recent years, uh, looked at tweaking the qualifying format to add a, add a Q4, for example, and, and getting rid of the, the Q2 tyre rule. 
um, but it has, but it hasn't happened. So it clearly hasn't been a priority. And then some, and you need something, you need something quite transformative for the format to actually spark a bit of action on stuff like that because quite clearly it would overcomplicate everything if you did try to to keep things like you know mandating the use of compounds in the sprint as well uh if you wanted to try and keep the q2 starting tire for this for sunday's grand prix um it, it it would be a little bit overcomplicated so they've obviously taken this something that has fundamentally shifted the landscape of the weekend and said right what are the other things that we need to tweak what are the other things that we're perfectly willing to sacrifice now that any other time we somehow haven't managed to find agreement to do anything about or there hasn't been a a desire to do anything about them so it shows that there are parts of a formula one weekend and part of the formula one rule set that are clearly expendable um or at least considered you know potentially expendable and maybe this weekend we'll get an an idea of uh, whether or not it actually makes any difference i think you're going to need really the full set of sprint races to get anything close to a bit a, a trend emerging of how certain things have have impacted it because obviously the nature of the circuit and the stresses it's putting on the cars and the tires for example are going to have a big a bigger impact on that sort of thing but um i think given f1 as you pointed out it introduced a bunch of this stuff to make the races more interesting it kind of feels a little bit dishonest to then say that we're getting rid of that because we think this is going to be really interesting. It's like, what's changed between then and now to suddenly make mean that we don't need this? I don't think making the race, you know, having a race that's load shorter is really going to fundamentally change that. So uh, curious to see if that actually has any impact, positive or negative. I can't really see how it's going to help. Well, what's interesting is I'm pro them trying different things for race weekend formats. I don't see there's any reason why every Grand Prix weekend has to be exactly the same. Obviously, three three sprint race weekends over three circuits is not a brilliant sample set for drawing conclusions, but it will give you a, a feel for it. But what's actually going to happen, Scott, in terms of what comes from this? Is it a trial for introduction at all races? Is it a, a hit and hope and they'll bin it after one year? What's, is there a halfway house? What What follows on? Well, there's not um, there's not like a, an official uh, answer on this at the moment, or a, fo- a plan that's been formally outlined, at least in public. That they'll have definitely discussed it behind closed doors. One thing that Braun's pointed out is that he can see this increasing, or he'd like to see this increase into maybe six events next year if it if it is a success. Um, but what they don't want to do is that they don't think it's something that works um, as a season long thing. Um, it's just something that could add a little extra to a select few Grand Prix events that are going to benefit from it. Um, I I would argue that it's the sort of thing that is going to be very, very track specific. And Braun has sort of hinted at this before. It, ha- it has to be a format that works and or, or is on a track where it works. For example, would you want to see this sprint format used at Barcelona, for example? Or uh, the well, obviously we don't know what the track changes are going to do, but Abu Dhabi, a race where there is no overtaking anyway, so it would literally just be an extra 100 kilometers of watching the cars go round and round in the same order. Like, I, I, I think that would be rubbish, for, to, to be honest. But uh, other tracks are a little bit more um, amenable to, to 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 better racing without any extra variables like you know safety cars or weather interruptions, that that sort of thing. So if it's if it if it does work, let's assume it does work, and we all agree, I think that adding um, 
a little bit of extra to Friday, Saturday, and then keeping the Grand Prix on Sunday is a good thing. Um, then why not increase it and use it at a few more events? I don't think I'd want it to be a, a full 100% format and neither, neither does F1. How, how exactly they're going to judge it, obviously F1 will have its own uh, metrics. They'll they'll be surveying fans. They'll be checking things. You, you, you can't judge it on the first weekend because I mentioned earlier there's going to be such a huge novelty value around this that I think you're going to have um, a bit, they're going to naturally have a, probably a spike in um, uh, TV viewers on, especially on the Saturday, to see what what happens with the sprint race. Um, and there's going to be loads more people talking about it on social media. So if you're doing, you know, not necessarily surveys on social media, but if you're checking, there's all sorts of analytics you can dig up on 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 Twitter, for example. If you're looking to see how many people tweeted about a certain thing, if you're looking at how many people were talking about F1, that's obviously going to be increased as well because there's a there's a point of to- point of topic to debate. Um, what F1 wants from it is very clear that they think that TV broadcasters, race promoters uh, are going to benefit massively from having something proper on Friday instead of FP2. And there's going to be something interesting on Saturday to take the place of qualifying, which is obviously the sprint race. So it gives each uh, each day of the weekend has a, a headline act and uh, has a sort of premiere event to use... Uh, Braun's terminology for it and in the basic logic the basic logic of that is is fine that that i i completely agree with that uh so that's how it works in theory uh but it does live and die entirely on whether the sprint race is any good because there's no point in introducing a format that works on paper if actually the product that you get as a result of it isn't actually any good because then you're just gonna have people criticizing it the first time they see it and that novelty value won't be repeated. People won't want to watch it again because it was rubbish and it will just be criticised. And then in that case, F1 says that they won't be introducing it anymore and they're not going to force it through if it doesn't work. I actually think that even if you're looking at it purely from a cynical point of view and saying this is just a way for F1 and a bunch of its partners to make more money, well, yes, it's a business. That is quite literally the point. And the better the pro- But the better the product they make, the more chance they are, they, the more chance they have of actually making money from it. So I think the sort of selfish commercial reasons that F1 has for doing this, the, the the ways to judge that are actually the same way that you and I and Mark and other people um, who are looking at this from a more traditional point of view are also going to be judging it. So I do think there are going to be sort of some common objectives and common hopes from this and that means I, we can probably trust the fact that they're going to judge this properly a, a, a little bit more than maybe we we might think so because it's easy to be cynical about this sort of thing yeah well broad terms i'm i'm happy with the uh the extra race let's just hope it uh, it leads to potentially more experimentation in the future now mark one interesting statistical footnote of this is that it has been decreed that pole position is considered to be taken not by the driver fastest in Friday's qualifying session, but by the winner of the sprint, who therefore starts uh, on pole position for, for Sunday's race. I'm not sure where that decree came from, presumably Ross Braun ascended Mount Sinai and got it. But numbers aren't the be-all and end-all. Formula One doesn't exist to generate statistics, but they are fun. And the pole position stat, it's one of the big beasts of F1 statistics, isn't it? So do you think it's the correct interpretation? No, I don't, actually. I, I, I would much prefer that they... They kept the official pole position um, lot for whoever went fastest in qualifying, which would, in this case would be Friday. Um, I, I guess they're trying to, you know, take the emphasis um, 
you know, place the emphasis where they want it in terms of the, uh, promoting the, the weekend as a whole. But for me, no, I, I, I think pole position means who can lap the car the fastest, not, not who wins a, a short sprint race on a Saturday. Yeah, I must admit, uh, I mean, I completely agree with that. I'm not even keen of the cases in the past where people have had penalties that have cost them pole. I'm not talking about technical infringements and disqualifications, but things like, say, Michael Schumacher at Monaco in 2012 when he was fastest in qualifying, he had a five-place grid penalty carried over from the Spanish Grand Prix for rear-ending Bruno Senna, so he didn't start on pole there. For it was a pole position that, that never happened. And there's a few of those dotted around. I think Raikkonen's got one in his past, Montoya maybe as well, from from memory. So yeah, I think it doesn't matter really. But insofar as the pole position statistic is worth anything, it is a measure of single lap speed ultimately. So it would be a shame if. Uh, if you end up with Max Verstappen fastest in qualifying, then Lewis Hamilton wins a sprint, and Hamilton's 101st pole isn't really a pole like all the other ones. So uh, a minor point, but uh, but one that's always fun to consider. Should we move on to, to wider issues at Silverstone, Mark? Christian Horner, he called Silverstone a stronghold for Mercedes. It has won six out of eight Grand Prix held there in the V6 Turbo Hybrid era and taken every single pole position. That history doesn't count for much, of course. So can we expect Mercedes to be a bigger threat than it was in Austria, at least? It might be because it, it does have some new parts coming, parts that were already um, been done in the wind tunnel, which were just haven't been manufactured yet in the, in the recent Austria races. Um, whether their car is intrinsically more suited to this type of track than it was in Austria, I'm not sure because it used to be that Silverstone was a high downforce, all about high-speed downforce, and if you, which car could generate the most high-speed downforce would be the quickest. But since the 2017 generation of wide cars and wide tyres, it's become more of a, a, a drag. Um, it's about, about drag levels because corners like Cops and Maggots are so easily flat out that all the cars can do them flat out. So even a car that's got less high-speed downforce than another car will tend to be quicker through those corners because it's arriving at them quicker and it's staying flat out through them. So you, you, those corners are no longer testing the ultimate high-speed um, downforce limits of, of the cars. So it may be that if it's just a, a, a how how efficient your downforce can be, it may turn out to be a Red Bull track, you know, because we, we've seen already that it can generate very good straight line speed even when carrying um less wing than than the mercedes um if that if that carries through it wherever the optimum downforce level is for each car um will it's not going to be the same for each car because they're so different and however that plays out is going to determine which which of them will be quicker now maybe closer than it was in Austria especially the second Austria where the Red Bull advantage was very significant um it may be it may level out I don't know it it really is I think the the battle between those two cars is still um we we can't be definitive yet it looks like the the, the pattern is that as the Parts go on to the Red Bull, it pulls further and further away from the Mercedes. But let's just see, because we, we've just had two races at the same track. So that's skewed the picture a little bit, perhaps. But I'd be very interested to see. And I think if if the Red Bull really is faster around Silverstone, then Mercedes has got a very big problem on its hands trying to win this championship. 
Is there um is there an argument that this is the sort of track that could uh, could allow a you know McLaren or Ferrari to 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 get close or, or pounce? Because la- last year I think was it the first Silverstone one, especially like I'm, one of the Silverstones last year, Leclerc was mega because he was able to make that quite aggressive low drag set up from the Ferrari work because as you were saying Mark you can as long as you can keep it pinned <laughs> it works and obviously I think Leclerc was just damn good at hanging on to it and then he, he made it work in the in the slow stuff and we've seen this year that that car is just really good at the in the slow speed bit so I was just wondering if that's the sort of package that you know you could probably get away with trimming trimming uh trimming the wings rely on the car to sort of stick at at low speed and, and maybe they'll get in the mix and likewise the McLaren which seems to be bloody quick in a straight line and good through fast speed corners. Maybe they'll be in the, in, in, in the mix as well. Yeah, it could be. I think of the two, probably the McLaren, for the reason that you said, it's um, straight line speed's very strong, which is which is also also a big factor. Not not just, as, as I said earlier, not just down the straights, but um, because you can carry that through the corner too. So, yeah, um, I'd be looking McLaren as a as a bit of a dark horse, but it, it may well close those top four teams right right up. It was an interesting one last year because you did see between the two Silverstones, a lot of people followed that that kind of Ferrari direction as they really did realise how much Silverstone had had shifted. So a lot of people are onto that. But yeah, it, it's it's a very very different circuit to the one of a few years ago, even though it is literally the same circuit, and that that just shows you how much tracks are redefined by the capabilities of the car. But Scott, overall, we've had Red Bull five wins on the bounce. So for the sake of the championship battle, do you think it does need? A Mercedes win just to re-spark the title fight. Yeah, I think so. Just because um, it's got to the point now where I think it's the first time. It's the first way. Well, it's the first time this season that both Verstappen and Red Bull have pulled like a, a full event clear of uh, of the others. I think Red Bull's lead is now exactly as much as Mercedes would get from a one-two and the bonus point for the fastest lap. So I don't want. To see, I, I don't. I don't care who who wins the championship of of the two. I don't. I don't care how how it goes over the course of the season. What I want to see is is the battle continue. And to that end, I wouldn't want to see the gap really get any bigger than it is now. Because I think one all the while you're around, and you know, in that middle ground between, let's say, one and two races worth of points, there's just there's just less uh, jeopardy in, in, involved, and there's. You know, there's less to lose when Verstappen and Hamilton go wheel to wheel. You know, Verstappen can afford to back out a little bit more if if Max uh, could could ever achieve that kind of mentality. Given we know that he uh, <laughs> loves to be aggressive when 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 he can be. So, just a return to sort of how much it ebbed and flowed in the first few races would be fantastic. I'm a bit worried, as Mark said, that the, you know this trend is that. The Red Bull is starting to edge clear, so I wonder if those days are now properly gone. But that doesn't mean that Merck can't you know, cause problems. And all it would take would be, you know, of a Stapp and DNF, and if Ham- then Hamilton's able to win, then that points gap is basically eradicated, and then we get back into the ebb and flow because things matter so so much race to race. Um, I think if I think the triple header was obviously fantastic for for Max and for, for Red Bull, built some serious momentum. I think they also established just the first serious advantage that we've seen so far. I mean, Hamilton did build a little bit of a buffer early on, but but not to this extent. Um, and I don't think he ever had in that, that little run in the first four races. Um, it didn't ever look like, you know, the car was going to, you know, just be totally out of reach for the Red Bull, whereas certainly in Austria, the Red Bull was totally out of reach for the Mercedes. So 
I do think we need to see a little bit of a shift and it would be quite ominous, not just for Mercedes, but for the for the championship fight if Red Bull rocks up to Silverstone, Max is on pole, but not pole, then wins the sprint race and is on real pole and then wins the Grand Prix as well. Yeah, it's it's I think important not to get too carried away with the situation as it is now, which doesn't look great for Mercedes, but we could be looking at a very different landscape if Hamilton hadn't hit the the brake magic button at Baku. If Mercedes got the strategy right at Paul Ricard, that would have been two wins. I don't think anything could have changed what happened at Austria in terms of Red Bull's supremacy. Although, even if Hamilton hadn't had that that little bit of aero damage in the left rear corner and finished second in the race, that would be a few extra points. So, yeah, things can move around a lot. And, yeah, like you, all I really want to see is it staying close. As long as it's decided at the last corner of the last lap, of the last race, which would be quite an achievement at Abu Dhabi if there's literally a passing move there. Uh, I'm I'm happy. Let's have a little bit of a look further down the grid, Scott, because one of the interesting intra-team battles this year has been Alpine. It started very well for Esteban Ocon in battling with Fernando Alonso, but it's been hard work for him recently. He wants as many parts as possible changed before Silverstone to troubleshoot the car. Non-specific problems there. So do you think he's held back by the car or just struggling to keep up with Alonso? Well, unless something's gone, um, unless something's gone genuinely wrong in the car, like like a um, like some kind of problem, something's broken, or you know, some, something's just not the way it should be, I don't really see how it can suddenly be being held back by the car because he's actually looked like the one that was on top of it, and he was showing some some great peaks in the first part of the season. So, um, I would have expected that. Obviously, we knew that those first few races that wasn't really the level of Alonso that we could really expect once he found his feet in F1 again so I've I'd to be honest I did expect a race sharp Alonso to edge ahead of Ocon over the course of the season but at this stage so close to when Ocon was doing so well I would have expected him to just you know at least you know edge closer to Ocon match Ocon maybe edge a little bit in front but Ocon's been you know so far off and cut such a different figure to Alonso over the last two or three events. I think what Esteban's on something like a four race pointless streak now, whereas Alonso was one of only a handful of drivers who scored points in the every race in the triple header that we just finished. So there's such a big difference now. I I, I can't help but be suspicion be suspicious that something's happened unless it is something as simple as you know, Esteban not quite hooking it all up, let's say in Azerbaijan and, and, and France and then in Austria, where obviously I guess this, if you had problems in the first weekend, they're probably going to be the same problems you have in the second weekend. So maybe it'd be expected to be the same situation, a little bit like we discussed about Daniel Ricciardo on the last podcast. And maybe Ocon's just sort of got into this mindset where he thinks there's something wrong. So he's sort of driving within himself and driving within a perceived limitation of the car. It's, it's really, really difficult, if not impossible, to decipher from the outside. Yeah, it's it's hard to judge. I mean, there have been suggestions that it may be a power unit deficit. His speed trap figures, for the most part, are a little bit down on Alonso, but not monstrously so. He did have that engine problem in Azerbaijan that put him out very, very early. But also, you watch the onboards, and you can see a difference in the corner entry phase, and that's that's critical. And it it has a few hints of what we saw with Alonso and Van Dorn at McLaren when McLaren had a fundamental instability problem, and because Alonso is just so good at adapting in the corner entry phase, he could live with it. Whereas Van Dorn was kind of sitting inside its limitations and effectively you just end up with a with a car that <laughs> becomes really understeery because you're just not able to to rotate it so I'm really interested to see what happens with uh with Ocon 
you kind of want to give him the benefit of the doubt, but at the same time, I've asked him quite a few times about exactly where he suspects the problem with, and he says, well, we can see some things in the data, but he won't point to anything specifically. Time will tell, ultimately. But Mark, what do you make of Alonso? He started the season already at a, at a pretty decent level, four or five race weekends maybe needed, but he's been he's been pretty sharp recently, hasn't he? Really, really quick in the second Austria in particular. That first, uh, first lap in Q1 was stunningly fast, and he'd have been certainly front four rows conservatively if he hadn't been blocked by Vettel in qualifying. Yeah, absolutely. He's um, really sort of hit his stride. Uh, we saw little glimpses of it sort of late, late race, um, you know, the, the, the late laps in Portugal earlier in the season, and then it dropped off a bit, didn't it? And then it looked like he was um, not quite hooking it up for a, a couple of races. But, yeah, last four, he's been looking very, very uh, much like the old Alonso, and he's just happy there, just getting some sort of tune out of a less-than-great car, um, and it, he seems to be loving it. He seems to be absolutely in his element. And, uh, yeah, that, that dice he had with Russell a bit you know, in the last laps the last race um you, you just saw someone who absolutely is loving what he's doing um so yeah i've, I've got um the, the the few doubts i had about whether he we would see the the real alonso after his time away they're they're beginning to evaporate now i think um we're, we're seeing some something very close to the um to the real alonso there was a great bit on lap five of the race when Alonso passed Raikkonen into turn three, and then Raikkonen came back at him at turn four. It's basically a little bit like the Norris-Perez battle at turn four, with Kimi on the outside and Alonso on the inside. Very, very similar. But Alonso managed to, at the exit, basically box Raikkonen in to exactly a car's width. Literally, if he'd been an inch to his left, he'd have been in the gravel. And if he'd been an inch to his right, he'd be he'd be in contact with Alonso. Just so precisely done. And actually, Raikkonen managed to, just to stay ahead through the following corner in that. But... He's so good in battle, uh, Alonso. When it that that's a really good indicator. Uh, I've, I think we do see the the driver of, of old days. Perhaps not a surprise, but on and off track, being a bit of a spiky character and make in terms of making his point off track, which I quite like to see as well. I was just about to say it's the 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 off track stuff is where we're also seeing uh, you know the old Alonso come back because I feel like he's. Uh, you know those uh, those early weekends where obviously it wasn't going great for him in terms of performance at, at times, but it was all very you know smiles and oh, I'm loving being back. This is much more enjoyable than I than, than I thought it would be. Oh, it's, I've really missed being away. This is lovely. And then just as he starts to find a little bit of uh, you know a bit of a performance step and things start to become a little bit bigger for him on track and he's got a little bit more at stake all of a sudden he's very very happy pointing out everything that's wrong about formula one or the people are doing wrong um i feel like it started in baku really with uh uh with he, he was ang- very angry and quite in qualifying wasn't he didn't he say that you know drivers need to stop driving beyond their or their cars abilities and uh it's just continued since then he's taken aim at uh sort of the officials for being lax um Obviously, do you remember? Obviously, Max got uh, or Red Bull got a little bit of a, a telling off from the FIA for Verstappen's uh, burnout celebration uh, in the Styrian Grand Prix. And then when they were back in the press conference on the Thursday, the, fo- uh, the following week, uh, Alonso just sort of piped up because he was alongside Verstappen in the presser and just said, "Well, I think uh, you know maybe the FIA should care about things things like drivers breaking the rules at Turn One instead of focusing on things like this." and then obviously he had a moan about people because he got impeded in qualifying. So it's just, yeah, 
brilliant, spiky, fiery Alonso. He's very, very bold on track again. He's bold off track. He's just, he's just good box office, isn't he, for Formula One? Just when when, when he's up for it, there's uh, there are a few characters that F F one benefits from having, like Alonso. Yeah, I would say to people, you may not be a fan of Alonso. You're not obliged to be. But he's great to have in Formula One, really, and, a, and a very, very fine driver. And I just enjoyed him watching the onboards when the safety car came out, and he was moaning about Ricardo using the runoff at Turn One at the start, and he just kept going on about it. And there's a point later on where he just sort of said under the safety car, he just said, "Okay, right, uh, I'm just going to overtake everyone before the line at the end of the safety car period because the rules don't matter, so that's all right." And he's just having this sort of chippy, sarcastic conversation with himself and sort of his engineers going yeah noted yeah no, yeah can we can we sort of think about this Alonso's doing everything he's meant to be doing but he's also just being chippy about stuff and uh, I, I, I like that and do you know what he very often has a very good point so uh, I think yeah Alonso's for the for the good of Formula One well let's have a look at a slightly sadder story mark carlos reutemann of course won the british grand prix at silverstone for ferrari 1978 he passed away last week at the age of 79 no great surprises it was very clear his health was deteriorating but always sad to to lose such a such a great driver and such a a well-loved character i never had the pleasure of seeing him race in formula one but he was absolutely one of the great nearly champions wasn't he oh absolutely i mean reutemann at his best was um untouchable you know, among his peers he, when he had an on day really had an on day and he would he would dominate um i did see him race i saw in fact my first grand prix he he won it was the british grand prix 78 um some go past nicky lauda as they, they tripped over bruno giacomelli lapping him and yeah he was um he was enigmatic uh, he was uh, he could have his on days and his off days um, he never seemed. He was a quite a conflicted character. I think I, I said in the in the obituary, he's more the temperament of an artist than a than a sportsman. Um, he would he would uh, go very 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 deep into things. A lot of a lot of very deep thought. He had a photographic memory for things like engine numbers and tire codes and gearbox ratios, and he, he was. He, he, massively in-depth and in how he approached it but he did have this wonderful natural talent he could um just when 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 everything was as he as he wanted it to be he was absolutely devastating and um actually one of the most uh extraordinary demonstrations of that came after his career it was in the 1995 argentinian grand prix ferrari gave him the 94 car for a few laps um, he was 52 years old at this time. He'd been in retirement for 14 years, and he got faster and faster and faster and faster. And he eventually did a time that would qualified him 11th or 12th the Grand Prix the following day. And that was, you know, after 14 years away. And also, he's the only guy to have finished on the podium in Grand Prix and World Rally Championship, as far as I know. Um, Beard gave him a, a car for the, uh, the 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 WRC round at Argentina in 1918. He finished third. And uh, later, a few years later, he drove a Peugeot in that rally uh, when he was 43 and finished third again. He was an extraordinary driver, extraordinary performer, um, but very much um, a lone wolf. He wasn't part of anyone's crowd. He was he was just had his own little own little world almost, really. And um, he never really found a home. He was he won races for Brabham, Ferrari, Williams. But he never, he really didn't um, ever find his home. And I, I think um, if if 
someone had ever managed to sort of build a team around him, we might have seen a, an even greater career as it was. He had the uh, he went into the final round of the eighty one championship, leading by a point, and um, set a brilliant pole position, and then finished a lackluster eighth in the race, and PK won the, the title. So that that was it, really. That was his one real shot at it, and but it's. Um, it does, that's not really a reflection of uh, the, the calibre of driver he was. He was one of the greats. Yeah, I think that, that Vegas race is just a – it encapsulates it, doesn't it? A driver who came so close to winning the World Championship but almost seemed to have talked himself out of it on the day. There was no particular reason that – certainly not a particular reason that stands up to scrutiny for for struggling, and he didn't need to do a great deal. So just a, a very, very good driver. There's an interesting anecdote that Gary Anderson told, actually, on our – recent podcast we recorded for members of the race members club when he said that because this thing you mentioned about that memory for engine numbers uh, gary said because he was at brabham in, in he joined brabham in 73 so reutemann was one of the drivers then that they used to sometimes uh, change the, the the engine numbers on the engines just so carlos felt he had the, the engine he liked apparently he liked number 111 of the dfes that that was one he uh, he enjoyed and uh, you can imagine gary uh, taking that sort of course of action when he wasn't hauling the DFEs in and out of transit vans or whatever it was uh, uh, that he did. But it, I always find drivers like Reutemann fas- fascinating, the ones who were absolutely fantastic. And in terms of the kind of the, the motor skills and speed and all these things, they're every bit as good as the people who do win the championships and multiple championships, but there's just something in them that isn't, is, that isn't there compared to the, the all-time greats. But sometimes it's the thing that makes them more easy to get on with his people. So uh, Reutemann, a, a great example of uh, of, of the, the nearly man. And I say that entirely as a positive, not as a, uh, a negative. And yeah, what a, a great career he had. Well, thanks very much, Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes, for your insight and looking ahead to the British Grand Prix. We'll, of course, be back after the race to have a very, very in-depth look at how things get on at Silverstone. And we may well turn up after the sprint as well to have a little bit of a discussion about how things went there. In the meantime, head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. Plenty to read there from all of us and the rest of the team at The Race. And Bring Back V10, season four of that podcast has just started. If you haven't listened to it before, it tells classic F1 stories. And the latest one is all about Fernando Alonso's first season in F1 with Minardi in 2001. And do also check out our YouTube channel. Just search for The Race if video is your thing. Next time you'll hear from us, we'll be at Silverstone. So thanks for listening and join us for everything you need to know from the British Grand Prix. (laughs) 